you know, I feel like there would be just like a great brainstorm episode on taking phrases like colloquialisms that we were like, these need a rebrand, elevator pitch, synergy, a please fix. And how can we just rebrand those into new words? And I think like some of them would stick. Webinar. Anyway. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Human Element Cares podcast on modern marketing. I am super excited. I'm always super excited, Alex. I, it's, it's like I can't find anything else new to say. To have Alex Lieberman, founder and CEO at Morning Brew. Th- this is like the fifth Morning Brew person to come on this podcast. I was going to say, you're just going deep in the Morning Brew bench right now. And I'm, uh, I'm batting cleanup. <laughs> we are extremely honored to have you guys be such a great partner to us. We've had such wonderful guests, Ryan and Samir, uh, have been absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad you have joined us, though. Obviously, you know, this is your baby. And if we were doing a different kind of podcast, we could spend 40 minutes on how your baby came about. However, as you and I discussed beforehand, we're going to do the two-minute version and then jump into kind of topics around marketing and media and this moment in time. But if you wouldn't mind giving sort of the short elevator pitch, I hate phrases like that, but the elevator pitch on how Morning Brew came about. Thank you for having me. And thank you for missing the menu game. I know that uh, we we clearly at the brew have a special place in your heart if uh, you're willing to talk to me right now. Truer words have never been spoken. (laughs) So yes, I'm going to give the condensed version. Morning Brew, New York City-based media company, normally New York City-based, currently 15 (laughs) state-based media company that empowers the modern business leader through engaging in accessible content. When I think about the business, I think about it in three chapters. First chapter was 2015 to 2017, which is when we were product as a hobby. So my co-founder, Austin, and I launched Morning Brew to better engage college students at Michigan with the business world. We had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea how to grow it. We had no idea how to monetize it. We were just doing a thing. Chapter two of the business was 2017 to beginning of 2019. This was after we raised capital and basically for a year and a half straight did nothing other than focus on the flywheel of making a product into a business. For us, the product was a a daily newsletter. It was all about write the best newsletter for the modern business leader, find qualified eyeballs to get reading our newsletter. So where can we find every modern business leader who should be reading our newsletter? And then finally, how can we monetize this audience if we're not doing through subscription? How do we storytell Morning Brew's lifestyle and our audience to some of the biggest brands in the world to convince them to pay us to storytell them in our newsletter? And so we basically did that until beginning of 2019. Since 2019, I would say we've been in chapter three, which has transitioned from Morning Brew as a business and a newsletter to Morning Brew as a business with a collection of products such that we are a media company, not just a media product. And so today, what Morning Brew looks like is we have four audiences, and our goal is the same for all of these audiences, empower them with engaging and accessible content. We have our general business audience, which we satisfy their needs with our daily newsletter, which goes out to 2.4 million people six days a week, our bi-weekly podcast, Business Casual, which interviews the biggest names in business from Mark Cuban to Meg Whitman to Edith Cooper. Then we have our B2B audiences, which we started launching in 2019. And those are 
our retail professional audience, our emerging tech professional audience, and our marketing professional audience. Marketing being our most recent launch, I think a week and a half to two weeks ago. And for each of these audiences right now, the product that serves them is a three-day-a-week newsletter. That was well done. It's almost like you've done that before. It's uh, my third time. (laughs) So that kind of accurately brings us to the date that I use as the beginning of the end of the old world, which is March 13th. Yep. That is the last time I spent any time on the island of Manhattan. And that's when the world changed. That was for us. That was uh, the day that we said we were going to test out quarantine because companies had started doing it. We're like, we might as well do a test day just to see if we can run our company remotely. And then one test day turned into two, turned into three, turned into four months. So yeah, March 13th was the first day that we weren't in office and the last day that we were in office. Same thing. We did our infrastructure test on the 14th, I think, which was the Friday, I think. And then we officially, before the end of the day, said, oh, this is the new model. We did the infrastructure test and the, oh, no, this is the new model in one day. So since that point, obviously, we've had an incredible series of events all around the world, but most especially here in the United States. We have gone through two or three or four awakenings in this. I guess my question is, what's it been like leading a, a young, growing organization in this moment in time? It's such a a nuanced and complex question because I think there's so many aspects to it. There's how has this been personally to, as a co-founder, living life while working from the place that I live life in, which is the first thing. How is it running a company Mm -hmm. um, as a professional during a time, not just where there's a world pandemic and people are quarantined, but also at a time where, you know, equity and equality in America is being challenged rightfully so. And that puts responsibility on everyone to do something and many things. And so what I would say is to sum it up, it has absolutely been a challenging time Mm. and probably one of the best learning experiences of my life. I really do believe that like challenges and mistakes and just like shit hitting the fan (laughs) on mass is the best environment to actually learn new things. Not to say that everything happening in the world is a positive, but if you were to ask me at what point in my career have I learned most, I would say unequivocally the last three months. And I actually think I've learned more about myself and more about leading a company in the last three months than I have in the last three years. I think that's right. You know, even in my own case, which is a different circumstance, And I've got one or two years on you in terms of uh, being around the block. The thing I think I've felt the most acutely over the past 120 days is just how transient it all is, right? The best among us probably get up in the morning and they say, you know what, today's uh, could be my last and I'm going to live it in a different way. And and yet we don't really, I, I don't at least, really live that way. And so we allow ourselves to get distracted and frustrated by this, that, the next thing. And many of those things ultimately don't matter. And many of those things come before maybe things that our values might want us to do first, not because we're doing wrong things, but because we're doing the clutter of things. And so there's been a real crystallization, I think, the past 120 days on those value-oriented things, be they personal things at home, be they ways I want to change who I am as a professional, and be they the things that I want the place that I work for to stand for and, and to mean. 
in a lot of ways, that's been the unintended benefit of some of this stuff. I think to your point, it's also, I think, in a lot of ways, the perfect storm for both challenge and learning, forced learning, because at a time when so much is happening in society, and there's so much we need to ask about ourselves as people, which also then obviously bleeds into being smarter, more empathetic, better professionals. It's also a time, I would say, that is built for the necessity of human connection, like for the necessity of talking through shit with people, like having tense but healthy discourse. Mm -hmm. And I do think like our situation, everyone's situation of being effectively 100% distributed in the work they do and going kind of stir crazy in their homes, finding it more difficult or harder to connect actually makes this kind of whole self-exploration, which is, which is so necessary to be smarter, more actioned and more empathetic makes it even harder. Yeah, I, there's no doubt. There's no doubt it makes it harder. I know on you know in my own little circle, a lot of people deserve credit for keeping at it. I mean, we are each day we are at it again. You know, and and we've gotten a lot of things wrong the day before, but we but we're back at it. In your mind, what what have been the biggest barriers to equity, equality, and representation in the let's call it marketing media agency business? over the past 30, 35 years? I can't necessarily speak to the last 35 years, but I can talk to the last... That was a softball for you to just remind everybody that you're much, much younger than I am. (laughs) I know. But what I can speak to is what we found from our experience at Morning Brew, ever since we hired our head of people, who is absolutely fantastic, comes from years at the Daily Beast, actually, in media, we have done what I believe are the right things to build a more diverse and equitable company. And I think what becomes both frustrating for not just senior leadership and myself, but everyone, is the pace at which the company becomes more diverse. And I think that is a such an understandable frustration for everyone, right? Like, we understand we want to be a more diverse company, diverse in thought, diverse in background, diverse in experience. And the lag for that to happen can be frustrating and it can lead us to question, are we doing enough? It can lead people to question us, are we doing enough? And I think those are all fair questions. What I can say we have done and what we've noticed is there is, first of all, so much talk and the the talk to action ratio is very, very high. Mm. And I think especially, unfortunately, what you've seen a lot of companies do amidst everything that's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, with all these conversations around equality and equity is that there's this need to do a lot immediately, like basically surge with action or saying things today in like a month. And I think what I've always been concerned about is that being as much virtue signaling for companies as it is like authentic action that can be sustained for not just months, but years. And so the way that we've tried to approach it is how do we do things today, but also how do we do things today that sets up infrastructure to do things tomorrow, a year from now, and five years from now? Because what I don't want to happen is us to be caught in the trap where the things that we should be thinking about always, that the only reason we don't think about them always is just a function of our white privilege, Mm. that we don't end up in the trap where we aren't thinking about these things a year from now. And so what I've found is a lot of companies are trying and may knowingly or not knowingly be virtue signaling in a way where they actually 
aren't setting themselves up to do things years from now. And so we've tried to think about what is the infrastructure we can set up. The other thing I will say from a market perspective in trying to build a diverse workforce is that the unfortunate part is that in media right now, at least from what we've seen, and especially in specific functions, especially from what I've seen in sales, in editorial, the existing employee base in these parts of media because of what you refer to as 34, 35 sure. years of inequity is a lack of diversity that exists in industry right now. Yep. And so when you're looking to build a more diverse organization, I think you have to look at it from a holistic perspective. How can we sort through all of the qualified employees in a non-diverse work environment right now and do everything humanly possible to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and experiences to our company when the industry is already shifted in the exact wrong way? But also, how do we think about it from a long-term perspective of whether it's our interns, whether it's our early career employees, rather than looking to people who are established in industry, how do we bring people into the industry? Like, how do we actually have the impact where we create the top of funnel such that 10 years from now, when a media company is looking to hire someone of diverse background in any given function, it doesn't feel like you're, you're starting with a completely lack of diverse set of people. And so I think it's a two-pronged approach to look at the existing set, but also bringing new diverse perspectives and backgrounds into industry, convincing them that Morning Brew specifically is a great place to work, that there is job security, yep. that we're actually growing our team, and that you're going to learn a lot. That is a, a huge challenge. Again, I, I think you're right in that, rightfully so, we, and I'll just speak about the agency business. Nobody in the agency business wants to hear that right now. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't mean it's not right. And part of that is just because of the historical perspective of failure in the business. And so we're trying to kind of walk that line between those two things is say, yeah, we failed and we have things we have to do this very moment. Yep. But also acknowledge that, you know, real progress here has got to be longer term. How have you sort of set up long and short-term goals in this specific area around representation? The short-term goal or the short-term realization is twofold. One is, was how can we set up infrastructure in the business to address equality and equity today? And when I say infrastructure, something that will hold us accountable for quarters and years to come. And so what we did a month ago was one, we donated to EJI because we believe that was an amazing place to put our money. The organization started by Brian Stevenson, who also wrote Just Mercy. We thought that was a great place to give our support monetarily. But our view was also, okay, money is one thing. How do we give our time and our thought space and also use Morning Brew as a platform? We ended up starting a CSR committee at Morning Brew that basically every quarter focuses on different cause. So the current one is on education. And basically just the whole idea is how do we hold ourselves accountable every quarter to doing something related to helping the marginalized, helping minorities. And that is inclusive of, but also in addition, not just the Black community, but so many other marginalized communities. And so the CSR committee holds us accountable to doing things on a quarterly basis. The longer term goals are twofold. One is around hiring, where I would say the long-term goal is actually creating more diverse workforce, full stop. Like mm -hmm. full stop, we don't have a diverse enough workforce 
as short-term as possible, but I think what is realistic, intermediate and long-term, having a more diverse workforce. The short-term action that led to that is us making sure we have relationships with minority job boards, making sure that we are setting up relationships with HBCUs, all of which we are doing. The final piece of this, and I think this is the harder long-term challenge, is much like an apparel company who's thinking about this and trying to create more equity in everything they do, is assessing the supply chain. And assessing the supply chain in media is a lot murkier and a lot harder. Assessing where we get our content from, who we do cross promotions with, who we are asking for comment. There are easy things, but then there are hard things. So the easy things are like for Morning Brews podcast, we should be able to very easily hold ourselves accountable to having a diverse set of voices that come onto Business Casual Show. That is a short-term thing we are doing today. But when we think about for Morning Brew, our daily newsletter, how are we sourcing our content? How are we elevating the voices of businesses and startups created by Black entrepreneurs or created by entrepreneurs from marginalized communities? That becomes a little bit more difficult that I believe is more of a long-term action. But vitally important. Yeah, of course. All of this is. Yes, and I didn't say that to minimize that. I I guess my point is that that last bit, it can be overlooked, right? We focus on sort of these internal things and we don't think about the more supply chain oriented things. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, again, it's, it's a little bit less fungible than a physical product, but it's not less important than a physical product. Exactly. Exactly. Last question on this, and then we'll kind of jump ahead. Has there been a moment for you in this? I asked Samir this last week when we talked that has been particularly personal or a, a vignette that really left an impact on you either from a partner or one of your employees or someone in your audience, yeah. a reader, has anything really kind of impacted you? Yeah, I'm actually going to refer to the conversation, the, the answer that Samir gave you, because yeah. I think this was, I, I think, the biggest realization for me in areas where I just need to be better. So to overlay this whole thing, I think what everything in the last three months has made me realize is that the fact that I'm thinking about this more mm in the last three months relative to my entire life is the best example of white privilege, right? It's the best example of the fact that I had the luxury of thinking about equity and equality and treatment of minorities more in the last three months than the last 26 years of my life is white privilege in itself. Because it it, it was not something that I thought about nearly as much. And so I think, one, I went through just kind of like my own self-exploration in asking myself, why haven't I thought about this more? And the answer that came out of, of this was kind of like a combination of disappointment in myself and then being like, I can be disappointed, but now like I just need to do something. I just need to realize I need to be better and understand my blind spots because of my privilege and not leveraging those as an excuse for naivety or not doing things. So that's the first. As it relates to the conversation you had with Samir, I believe the example that he gave was he talked about having a weekly check-in with a Black member of our organization and him asking them, how are you doing? And the member saying, you know, thanks so much for asking that. That's the first time I've been asked this. At the time when this conversation happened, like I, I was aware of this conversation and I felt this level of guilt. And I actually had a conversation with this employee after basically saying, you know, like, I'm so sorry that I, I didn't check in, yep. see if there's anything I can do to be a support. And I think 
what I thought through, like, why didn't I do that? I think there were two things. One is I wasn't nearly focused enough on the individual people in our company that are most affected. I was thinking way more about the actions of the company as a whole. I think the second thing, which is an even poorer justification to myself, was that, well, how do I know I'm going to say the right thing? Is how are you the right answer? Is it, I'd love to help you? Like, I think I justified to myself, well, how are you isn't the right way to say something because clearly they're not okay. Clearly this is an intense life moment. And I think from this experience, what became very real to me is it's kind of, my, my rationalization was all kind of complete bullshit. One, that at the end of the day, nothing is more important than the individuals in the company. You are your team. And if you are not putting, just like family, if you're not putting your family in a professional setting before everything else, you are doing something wrong. And then I think the second piece is maybe how are you is the the wrong phrasing, but the default from how are you to not saying anything, like, you know, it completely bastardizes the frame of thought. Like, okay, yes, maybe I was concerned about that. But my guess is me checking in on that ploy. And even I said, if I said the wrong thing, how are you? But I was concerned about it. And I said, hey, how are you? Also, you know, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how to articulate myself, but I just want you to know I'm here for you. I don't think you will ever be faulted for that line of thinking. But for saying nothing and leaving someone wondering if you actually give a shit, you can absolutely be faulted for that. And I think that was the biggest realization for me. Thank you for that. I really appreciate your your candor on that. And, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, one of the things we've tried to focus on internally is we are going to make mistakes. We, as senior leadership, are going to make mistakes. But we need to make those in order to make the progress. Because the other option, which is we're worried about making the mistakes, means we won't do the things we need to do. For sure. And I think that's really critical. All right. You recently launched your fourth newsletter. You mentioned earlier, you're, you know, 10 or 14 days in. And it's one that's near and dear to my heart because it's the industry in which I've spent my entire career. Yep. And that is aimed at marketing. How did you choose that industry and why? Just taking you back a little bit, the way when we were first going from Morning Brew, the singular newsletter, to B2B newsletters, we basically had the same criteria to assess whether it ever made sense going into a specific industry. And it was always, one, what industry do a lot of our readers work in? So we know that we're naturally going to have a lot of cross-pollination on day one. The second is, what is an industry that has a large enough market in general, Mm -hmm. such that, one, there's enough news flow to do at least a a three-day-a-week newsletter, but also that there's enough depth in advertisers such that if we end up never monetizing this B2B audience or any of these B2B audiences directly, and we need them to be ad-supported, that there will be depth in advertiser. So that was always the criteria. And the final piece, which was always the hardest, is we need to have an unbelievable writer because at the end of the day, our content is our product and our voice is one of the differentiators for Morning Brew. It is going to be trying to find a unicorn Every single time we try to get a new writer for these verticals because we are looking for someone who has deep subject matter expertise and can write like they talk, like with this, you know, colloquialism and this irreverence. And so what we said is let's list out the industries that we think satisfy all those criteria. And then let's not actually order the industries we're going to go into, but rather let's start looking for writers wherever we can find the best writer if it's one of those industries, we'll launch that industry. So like we went emerging tech, retail, marketing, and that wasn't actually by design. Those were just three industries that were in that bigger pot. Sure. The reason we ended up prioritizing marketing is twofold. 
One is as someone who has read marketing content, you know, obsessively for the last four years, what I can say is there is really good information created by the traditional publications. We don't believe that the way it is packaged and presented to a millennial marketer is done so in a way that is going to keep them engaged and make them heart loyal with the brand. So that is like full stop. We just thought there was an opportunity to better engage the next generation of marketing leaders. The second piece of it is the halo effect that Marketing Brew will have for us. Not only will we be creating great content for a B2B audience that we hopefully can monetize because there's there should be a lot of depth in advertiser, but also now what we're talking about is having hundreds of thousands of brand, performance, and every type of marketer reading this, now knowing about Morning Brew. So now when our sales team goes into an agency sure. and say beforehand, the ratio of cold to warm room was 80-20, now it actually has the potential to be flipped. And that was a really exciting value prop to us. Yeah, yeah your audience is your audience. Exactly. <laughs> our customer is our customer. Yeah, exactly. Look, I agree with you. I think the state of play in the marketing trades is wide open. And I think there's a real opportunity uh, to go do something different there. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do. Not to mention, it's a fun, gossipy industry. Like it's, you know, it's irreverent in and of itself. And people move all the time and accounts move and people change their mind and there's mistakes and scandals. It's got everything in it. I think to that point also, what we have found is generally for our B2B verticals, like retail or emerging tech, there's less virality in like the word of mouth of these than Morning Brew. And I think it makes sense in practice because you're reading it about your industry. There's only so many people you can tell about it. But I think to your point, from like all the research we've done, like marketers are just a, not in a bad way, but just like a extroverted, gossipy, like oh, chatty 100%. community. Yeah. And so I think there's actually inherent virality baked into yep. this B2B audience that doesn't yep. exist with the other ones. Oh, totally. Only Hollywood is more yep. gossipy than we are. Like it's it's literally, that. it's... Hollywood, then maybe a notch and a half down, it's, it's marketers. So we've gotten to the, the point in our little program here where we're going to mention the B word, which is a word I didn't think much about previously. <laughs> but now I think about it all the time, and that is boycotts. What's your particular perspective on social media boycotts? And is the effort and the movement changing how you're thinking about your approach? The short answer is, I think the boycott makes complete sense. Like, I understand why the boycott exists, why people are joining the boycott. I think my only, not even critique or question of it, is what is going to be the change that is expected from Facebook or platforms such that boycotting no longer makes sense? And I, I just haven't heard a great answer to that yet. This comes down to, as we are thinking through this as a company right now, the short answer is we have not stopped our paid advertising on these platforms. Why haven't we stopped it? Because this is such a large part of our user acquisition. So, you know, 50% of all of our subscribers come through paid acquisition, predominantly on Facebook and Instagram. And this is something that I'm actively having conversations with people about. So if whether it's you or any of your listeners have thoughts on this, I, I would love to, you know, just have smart conversation about it and how others would think through it. But sure. basically the idea is that if we suck the oxygen out of growth and we just start growing slower or not growing our audience at all, and actually like potentially our audience shrinks, 
then obviously the ability to monetize our audience becomes harder. The ability to grow our team to do other things related to what we were talking about earlier becomes harder. And so it's kind of this catch-22 or for Star Trek fans, the this Kobayashi Maru. I love sorts. that you just mentioned the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, I think of I, people I, my age... just made that, me so happy. I think of people my age that actually know what that is. I can count on my one hand, but uh, yes. So it, like, I, I didn't say it was a reference that much of the audience would get. <laughs> I'm just glad you did it. Yeah, and, but it, it's a really tough thing because I think it makes so much sense. And I don't want to say it's easier or harder for anyone, but when all of our paid acquisition paid marketing is directly related to performance marketing that is driving new high quality subscribers to our newsletters to deprive our newsletters of that growth without a clear sense of where we could pick out that growth in other places. Because we've thought heavily about how could we pick up growth in other places. It's just very difficult to justify right now from actually just like building a, you know, a healthy business. Yeah, look, I think that makes total sense. You know, it's an incredibly difficult situation to be in is to have to even consider some of these discussions. Because to your point, there is a moral imperative around having these social media platforms address much more comprehensively how they tackle hate speech and how they tackle the, you know, really in Facebook in particular's case, the way the newsfeed works and how that gets adjusted in a way that can be more brand safe, for sure. But then there's also the business realities, particularly in a marketplace like this, you know, and, and yeah. that that decision has to be made is one of the sort of knock-on tragedies of this whole situation. And out of curiosity, like from just even within, you know, what you've seen in industry from brands mm-hmm. that are starting to pull, for brands that, let's say, are spending a large portion of their budget on performance marketing, on really driving revenue, have you seen one, any successfully do this, but also where they are shifting that budget to? Yeah, the second answer is unsolved yet, <laughs> which is, you know, have they been able to be successful in it? That's an unknown. Yeah. You know, the places where they're putting it are the places you might expect. There's a, a doubling down into some elements of search. There's a, an expansion into some other platforms that at least have some barriers that are more defined. Certainly, if you look at, you know, YouTube as an example, they've spent a lot of the past three and a half years in this brand safety issue. And now their product is different. That's important to know, right? Product is different. But they're further along as it relates to brand controls than Facebook is, especially around newsfeed, which there fundamentally aren't any guardrails on right now. Right. But the reality is, and you, you already know this and your team already knows this for sure, and that is there is nothing of Facebook scale, right? There just isn't. Yeah, And that is part of the challenge. You know, our particular point of view, and we've been very specific with both Facebook and our clients, Facebook's an incredibly important partner of ours. It doesn't mean we agree with everything that they do. And, you know, part of being in a partnership is holding them accountable and them doing the same for us. And so we really view our particular role right now as working to drive that accountability in concert with our clients. We do not think that our role as an agent of our clients is to simply throw up our hands and walk away. We respect those clients that make those decisions because they need to, and that's totally fine. But our role is to work to make this environment better for our clients and their customers. And we can't do that without working with Facebook. We just can't. Yeah. Having said that, there's a lot of things that we think need to change. And we've had a lot of conversations about how that, you know, can happen. And so, 
I fully understand where you're coming from. That's sort of where we're coming from is that we have to be a part of the change and that hopefully those things can happen. I will say this, you know, and this is my personal view. This is not a corporate view, but my personal view is that there's been, while not sufficient by any stretch, there has been more movement here from that organization than there has been at any point heretofore. And I do think there is a growing recognition that this has got to be different and not just because of the boycott, right? If you look at the banning of the Boogaloo groups, whatever that was 10 days ago or something, which comes what fully four or five weeks, maybe three and a half, four weeks after the incident that the terrorist incident, domestic terrorism incident, look, they cannot have a situation in which that takes four weeks to solve. Right. Right. You just can't. So I think there's a, a growing recognition at the very senior levels of that organization that it's got to be different. But in the short term, how quickly can you change the news feed? What does that look like? How do you gain accountability over it? You know, how do you make that transparent for clients? These are really tough issues. The stated Facebook claim, you know, 89% of, of hate speech is blocked. Let's just take that on its face. That means 11% of billions and billions of transactions aren't. And while that, you know, 11% by an objective measure is low, 11% of billions and billions is a horking lot. Right. I mean, it, it, it needs to be like, what's the terminology used in engineering? Like Six Sigma? Six Sigma. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now you're taking me back to my old days. But yes, it does. It has to get engineered to that point. So it's going to be interesting. You know, again, the questions we've been working through with our clients are, let's say, for example, Alex, you guys made a decision that you were going to withdraw for the month of July. Let's just say you made that decision. What's the criteria by which you get back on? Right. To that point, that's, you know, one of the things that I'd originally asked is the hard part about this is Facebook needs to make changes. Those changes are very foundational and structural. Yes. So these changes are not going to happen overnight. They're no. most likely not going to happen in a month, maybe two months, three months, maybe six months. Yep. And so as a company who is trying to provide the right amount of pressure to Facebook while also continuing to build a healthy business, how long do you hold on to that for? And I, I think that's a very real and difficult question. Yeah, it is. And the last thing here, and then we'll move it along, is, you know, ultimately this comes down to what your business is entirely about, and that is audience. And the reason why marketers are in the platform is because the audience is in the platform. Yep. And to some extent, I don't think we can successfully get to a better resolution unless there's movement both on the advertiser and the audience side. Now, I know the audience side is difficult to manage and it's gigantic and whatever, but there's got to be a move on the audience side to seek something different too or to seek change. And, you know, the reality of that is that hasn't manifested itself yet. I do think it's coming. Yeah. You know, my wife sent me a text a week ago, which was a, a snapshot of the New York Times and all the logos that had banned Facebook. And her text was, let's make sure we do some online shopping from any of these this weekend. <laughs> now, my wife doesn't know anything about the business. She, you know, other than, you know, being stuck with me for the past 21 yeah. years, she's not in the business. She does not care, you know, and then she got in a discussion with some of her friends and you, now you have 50 year old women actively talking about how they can choose to right. participate with brands who are participating 
in this boycott is an interesting discussion. It just shows the weightiness of the discussion right now. It doesn't show that anything is actually new, right? Like all of these these problems with the platform have existed for a long time, but clearly the momentum behind the narrative has pervaded more of society than we've ever seen. Absolutely. All right, let's jump ahead to an equally uplifting topic. Are you ready? I'm ready. The coming election, by any objective observer perspective, and regardless of your political orientation, is going to pose a remarkable test of all U.S. institutions, right? The political system, the voting system, our system of discourse, certainly the media. How do you and your organization look at the way you need to act and the kinds of actions you need to take to be supportive amongst all that coming chaos of trust and truth? Yeah. (laughs) And you have 15 seconds to answer that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think we could speak for 15 weeks on the subject, but we have always said that Morning Brew doesn't cover politics. That said, we are human beings. Black and white is a barbell where Mm. it's like 10% and 10% and 80% is gray. And us saying we don't talk about politics is oxymoronic. Mm. There are so many business implications of political decisions and political agendas that we would actually be doing a disservice to our readers to not talk about the business implications. Yeah. What that means, though, is we need to hold ourselves accountable to finding very real, very important business implications of political news and not force-fitting political news to business implications for the sake of talking about politics. Hmm. It is nuance. It is not science. And that is why we set up guidelines as an editorial team, but also why there's a democratic process in us picking stories in our newsletter where no one person is deciding what goes in the newsletter, there is a process by which, especially when we're talking about really weighty issues or issues that there are so many downstream effects of just simply talking about it, they're discussed with a lot more gravity within the business. And the decision-making process ends up not falling on like one editor, but actually is a conversation among potentially multiple editors and our head of content when need be. When we start talking about really weighty issues, that's when Samir gets involved in the discussion, as I believe he should. And the other thing that the thing that I think makes this even harder is, you know, one of the criticisms that we receive from readers a few days after George Floyd's death was the fact that we didn't give enough space to covering the news around his death because we had included as a bullet point, but a bullet point didn't accurately reflect the importance of this issue being known by society. Yep. In retrospect, we would have given way more space to it. And I think Samir may have talked about it in his episode, but I think what we didn't realize, or our assumption has always been Morning Brew is business news for the modern business leader. But I think if you flip it around and you say, what does the modern business leader need to be a successful modern business leader? It doesn't just look like business news. There's other news that is really important in their content diet to be smart, empathetic, successful leaders. 
Some of those include societal issues that simply can't be ignored and actually should be put ahead of some business issues because they take precedence to business issues. And so the reason I think that makes the discussion even harder of the question you asked is we actually should be permitting ourselves to get our feet wet into political territory, I would say, more than we were before if the implication on the business world is so large that you should know about this ahead of other business stories. And so kind of to tie it up, it is really hard. The harder the conversation, we are not going to shy away from these hard conversations. We are going to welcome the hard conversations. And we're probably, when we have these hard conversations, just going to include more and more people in it who have different perspectives such that we can actually feel really good about the conversation we have. It is never going to be black and white, but we're going to just try to do the best thing for our readers, which is provide balanced curation on the most important things happening in the business world. So as a media organization, as an employer of journalists, journalism has been under fire for the past three and a half, four years as a discipline as a craft. Yep. How have you worked with your teams, your editorial teams, on how to support them in that kind of environment? It is really, really, really difficult in the sense of what our editorial team, I don't want to say is enduring, that's the wrong word, but the, the work they are doing right now is more important than ever, but it is more exhausting and I would yeah. say more depressing than ever. 12 hours a day, our editorial team is reading news, a lot of which is politicized, is negative, is just like scary and fear invoking. And so I give so much credit to our editorial team. And I think what it comes down to is making sure from the top that our editorial team knows that there is a space for them to have conversation to have conversation about anything that is on their mind, that we not only recognize how good the work is that they're doing, but also how hard the work is that they're doing. And also just having a balanced conversation. So when I give you the example before of like the critique we received around the way in which we covered George Floyd, that while we think that the readers that wrote in about this made really good points and that we should make changes, making sure that our writers don't think that we are accusing them of something, don't think that it is us versus them, and more that it is a team effort to get better and provide balanced and smart content and commentary. And so I think that's where the hard balance exists, where we need to be looking to our readers for feedback. We are getting more feedback than ever before, and we need to be really good at sifting through that feedback. And when we deliver that feedback to our writers, we have to understand that the context in which we're delivering that feedback is at a time when they are exhausted, where they're doing everything they can to create great content that adds value to people and everything is nuanced. And so when we deliver this feedback, we have to know that like it has to be delivered in a way that is both supportive of them and also collaborative where we're not putting this all on you. Like you are the voice of our entire organization, mm-hmm. but we are going to put our support behind you and work towards whatever a better or more perfect product is together. And so I think this aspect of making sure there isn't this divide between organization and editorial is really important because I think without explicitly saying that and showing our appreciation and empathizing or showing that we understand like how difficult this is, 
people are great story making machines. And I think people can just like the editorial team could assume that like we find the work that they're doing isn't satisfactory enough. And we never want them to feel that way because we know how hard they're working. All right, you've made it to the lightning round, which we haven't done in a little while. We're, we're gonna we're we're wading into it just a bit less serious territory, which we, okay. we we've not done here in a couple Let's of weeks. Do it. Best piece of content recently consumed, not your own. I read a web article by Morgan Housel, who writes essays for the Collaborative Fund. He wrote a piece on risk, but he did so through telling a story about his experience as a competitive skier growing up. And it goes into his two friends that died in an avalanche and talked about thinking about risk through the context of that story. And it was one of the best pieces using just such a profound story and a traumatic story in life as a ruler for the rest of his life that I I found incredible. Hmm. All right, I'm going to read that. Best advice you've either given or received? The best advice that I have received is being incredibly judicious about how you give out your time. But once you give out your time, being as present as possible with the time you've given out. So be good at saying no, be purposeful in what takes up your time in your day. When you end up making those decisions, make sure that you're not doing five other things with the time that you've given. Yeah, that's a really good one. Thing people should know about you, but they don't. While I am confident, I am highly critical of myself and oftentimes very self-conscious and vulnerable as a founder. Like I, I have found the startup journey to be one of the most fulfilling experiences I've ever had, but it also forces you to ask really hard questions of yourself. And I find it to be very a very self-conscious experience at points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's only been through introspection, through a whole lot of therapy and through talking to people that I've been able to endure the journey. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Last thing, you are a Michigan alum. I am. So I take it you're a University of Michigan football fan. I am. Yeah. All right. We were getting along. Was that was that a question or a statement? That was a statement. We were, we were we were getting we were getting along to this point. I grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So I, when you're born in that area yep. of the country, you get a you know printed a card that says Penn State football. Period. That's it. There's no there's nothing else on the card. As long as the words OSU or Ohio State weren't going to come out of your mouth, oh. we're we're okay. Yes, we share a common enemy. Yes, we do. <laughs> that that is for sure. We share a common enemy. Alex, I can't thank you enough. You were absolutely fantastic. Thank you for all the time and and for being so open. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Please do give us a like or subscribe. We'll be back out to you real soon. In the meantime, please be well, be just. Bye-bye.